handful of housekeeping things before we get into the word today. Number one, um, as many of you know, Pastor Michael and his lovely wife, Dawn, had their first child about a month ago. Yep. And, uh, and, and Bryce has been in hiding, but uh, today he decided to, he decided to uh, you know, come, come public, I guess. And, and so, is he sleeping? How, how's he doing? Is he sleeping? Oh, no? Will you just lift him up and, and turn it? <laughs> okay, there he is. <laughs> That's hilarious. Michael held him up like a bottle of water or something. It's just like, here it is. Thank you. Uh, secondly, um, I, I want to acknowledge some folks this morning um, who serve incredibly faithfully. And this also happens to be a ministry we're in tremendous need. We've been pushing, challenging you guys to get involved for a year. And this is an area where we desperately need your help. As you know, we rent this place. So when we come in on a Sunday morning, none of this is set up. Nothing is prepared. And there are a group of men and women who faithfully, even during cold winters, would wake up at 637 come and, and set all this up so that we could worship. Uh, volunteers in that ministry have dropped off as time has gone on because it's not glamorous, it's not fun, and it takes a lot of work. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to thank those people who've served faithfully by giving them a huge round of applause, okay? A couple of them approached me and said, I don't want to go stand up front. I don't make, you know, because the whole public thing, I said, I totally understand it. And I really actually appreciate that heart that says, we do it because there's a need. We don't need to be acknowledged for it. And I just want to thank these folks for what they do. Having said that, we also need some of you guys to step up. This is an incredibly important need. Would you consider serving in this ministry? Caleb, will you just stand up from where you are? Caleb is kind of coordinating and, and, and kind of uh, strategizing this. And he is the guy. His information is also in the bulletin. Please talk to him after the service, okay? And say, hey, I might be interested in serving. What, what do I need to do? Okay? Thank you, Caleb. So if you guys can do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Third thing, um, last week after the service, um, a person who's recently been coming to our church came up to me after the service and said, um, I don't know you that well, but I, wanna, I need to say something to you. And she said the following. She said, I've heard you preach for the last three, four months, and, and, and there are certain things that you say that, that I've heard other pastors say. And, and I just want to make sure that you give credit where credit is due. And my response was, first, very defensive, and then the Holy Spirit kind of took over, and I listened, and I listened. I've said to you guys many times, um, and I'll continue to say this, I read a lot of books, I listen to a lot of sermons. That means that I'm influenced by a number of people. And I'll be the first to admit, there's very few things that I say that are of my own. I am not that smart, okay? I'm not that creative. I'm a product of being mentored by people who are alive as well as people who are dead. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying, my heart is to be a good preacher that will communicate God's truth well. And I needed to receive what this person said because the, the reality and the truth is if I'm going to be a good preacher, I need to be able to give credit where credit is due and I need to do better. I need to do better. The hardest thing for me was that she questioned my integrity. And that was hard because there are a few, few things that matter to me more than my integrity and my character. Fewer things. Many of you have been burned by people in the ministry, pastors who lacked integrity. That's why you walked away from the church and haven't come back for a while. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that pastor. I don't want anybody in this room to question my integrity. Because if I don't have my integrity as a pastor, I don't have anything. So I want to apologize, first and foremost, for being careless in terms of giving credit where credit is due. Secondly, I want you guys to pray for me and you have open invitation that when you hear something and you feel like, I've heard somebody say that before. I feel like I've read that before. Is it of you? Is it somebody else? Come up and ask. I'll be more than willing to tell you who it is. 
In no way do I want to deceive or connive or lie to the people that I love and people that I care about. Open your Bibles with me to Acts 20. We're going to go ahead and read Acts 20. And I tell you in a moment why what I just shared is very important, very critical in light of what we're going to talk about today. Here we go. Acts chapter 20, starting verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know, I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and a faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every way, every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I have never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit to you, you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is God's word. As we come to Acts 20, here's where we are, you guys, as we continue this series. Paul is standing and he is saying goodbye to a group of elders, group of leaders of the church of Ephesus, church that he had planted. And as he's about to leave them, as we see, knowing that he may not ever see them again, he, he tells them the very last the sort of things that are very dear to his heart that he may want to say for the last time. I have been more fortunate and unfortunate to serve in a number of capacities in different churches and, and, and ha- after having served, leaving. And it's amazing that at every church that I've served, every place that I've served, if I have an opportunity to say something for the last time with them, it kind of, it's amazing how there's the stilling of your thought and and clarity overcomes you. And and the last time you're with them, you just kind of want to say, here are the most important things that I want you to remember. And as Paul is sitting down with these people, what he's literally saying to them, I think you can summarize it this way. He says, I want you to live well. I want you to live well. I want to go ahead and just go through this text, and then we'll, we'll hit, hit on some of these things of what it means to live well as a Christian. So look at verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know, I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, Paul says. When I was a young pastor, I had mentors of mine who were great for me. Because they would say these things about what it meant to be a leader that stuck with me. And one particular mentor of mine said this. He said, Peter, you don't need to be a person of character to lead. I was like, what? That goes against everything I believe. What do you mean you don't need character to lead? He says, no, no, no. There are great leaders who lead and have a lot of people following. But he said this. He said, great leaders don't just lead people, but they are people who are worth following. He said this, he said, you could be a great leader and and become a famous person and have your name known, but 
how you lead and your character will determine what they associate with your name. He says, you don't need character to lead, but he said, you will need character to lead well. A lot of people will follow a gifted person, but they might not necessarily respect them. He says, people won't remember how or where you let them. He said, people at the end of the day remember how you led them. And that's really stuck with me for a number of reasons. Many of you guys serve in different capacities and businesses and organizations. And it's amazing when you go through all of these books on leadership, survey after survey, what's the one characteristic trait that everybody wants in their leader? Honesty, integrity, character, trustworthiness, right? Everybody ever surveyed says, I want somebody. And, and, and if you're sitting there going, leader, I don't lead a business. No, I'm talking about if you want to be a good father, a good mother, a good friend, a good small group leader. In any capacity where you have influence, the number one characteristic trait that everybody says I want is integrity, is honesty. It's the fact that you're trustworthy. Paul, throughout his life, was a man of integrity. He's saying here, look, you guys know how I lived the whole time I was with you. My life was an open book. My life was transparent. I thought about this a lot in light of what I just shared with you guys a little earlier. When you look at the word integrity, a really closely associated word integrity comes from the word integrated. Integrated. What does it mean to be integrated? Integrated means to be whole. We say stuff like, he's got his stuff together. He's consistent, or she's consistent. Integrity, integrity. A person of integrity is someone who on the outside matches the person that you are on the inside. A person of integrity doesn't just live one way in public and then live another way in private integrity. This is how God is. God is totally consistent. His behavior and his actions match his character and his nature. And God says he expects those who follow him to be the same. To be people of integrity, consistent, trustworthy. People of integrity do the right things in the right way for the right reasons. People of integrity do the right things in the right way for the right reasons. What are the right reasons? You do what's right because it's the right thing to do. You don't need a reason to do right. You do the right things because it's the right thing to do. In other words, it's not a virtue. It's a virtue in and of itself. You do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, regardless of cost, opportunity, time. Integrity. Consistency. Here's some uh, principles I want to throw up there. Integrity. Person of integrity, there's no discrepancy between what you claim to believe and how you actually live. If you're a person of integrity, John says in 1 John that genuine believers, here's his analogy, don't be different in the dark than when you do when you're in the light. You've heard said this before. Person of integrity doesn't be different when nobody is looking. We're a generation that doesn't respect people who like to talk the talk, but doesn't what? Walk the walk. We expect everybody else to say, what you say you believe, we want to see consistency in how you actually live. And I want to ask you today, is there alignment as a Christian follower of Jesus between what you claim to believe, between what you say you believe, and how you actually live? John... Paul, writing to his spiritual son Timothy, said this in 1 Timothy 4. Verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearts. Notice the two things that Paul exhorts Timothy to watch. He says, watch your life and watch your doctrine. In other words, watch the way you live and what you believe. Make sure they match. Examine yourself to see whether or not your walk matches the way you talk. Person of integrity. Second principle, they do what they say they'll do. They keep their promises. They keep their promises. How many of y'all have been hurt by relationships and people who didn't keep their word? Raise your hands. High. 
Anybody relate to that? Of course we can. We all know what it's like to be on the other side of relationship where somebody fails to keep their promises. But again, we come to the character of God for where we're pointed to. Whatever God says, the Bible says, he will do. Whatever God says, he will do. Whatever God says, he will do is as good as done. James said it this way, James 5. With God, yes is always a yes, and no is always a no. In other words, when God says yes, it'll stay a yes. When God says no, it'll stay no. When God makes a promise, he can be counted on to fulfill that word. Person of integrity. Let me ask you, do you keep your word? Person of integrity, do you keep your promises? Person of integrity, are you reliable? Person of integrity, are you dependent? It's not big things. Let's narrow it down. Person of integrity. Do you show up at the time that you say you will show up? To which some of you sitting there going, you're the worst at that, Peter. I know. (laughs) I'm terrible at it. My wife, man, talk about conviction. You know what she said? She's like, you know what it is when you show up on time? She says, you don't show up on time. She's like, you think your time is more valuable than theirs. Do you show up when you say you're going to show up? Integrity. And not just showing up physically, integrity. Are you fully present and fully there when you do show up? Integrity. You do what you say you're going to do. No matter what the cost. Third principle, people of integrity. They're consistent in their public and private personas. So much of our lives are consumed with image maintenance. So much of our time is consumed with getting other people to think about us the way we want them to think of us. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? John Ortberg said this. Human conversation is largely an endless attempt to convince others that we are more assertive or clever or gentle or successful than they might think unless we carefully educated them. Image maintenance will cause you to live one way in public and another way in private. Integrity. Integrity. See, some of you guys to tell yourself, you know, it doesn't matter how I live away from my office. Really? It doesn't. If there's a perceived difference between what you expect from other people and what you expect from yourself, it will erode your influence as a husband, as a mom, as a friend. Let me say that again. If what you expect from others is inconsistent from what you expect from yourself, it'll erode your influence. This is hard for me, this whole public-private personas, because every time I take my family out to a public restaurant, one time, I won't name the restaurant. Jenny and I were at a restaurant, and we were getting terrible service. Like, they jacked up our order. And the guy was nice enough, the waiter, you know, he was nice and really engaging and so on and so forth. And I had this thought in my mind, like, that guy comes to our church. <laughs> but I wasn't sure. So I sat there going, what do I do? Do I just, ah, you know, add him? This is terrible. You forgot. To... Or do I be gracious and actually tip him a lot more than I would normally do? I wasn't sure. So we just kind of act, yeah, you know. And, and at the end, sure enough, he comes by and gives a check. He's like, Pastor Peter, I, it's been a while since I've been to church. And I was like, you know, it's like, God. he says, I've been working. It's been hard. You know, I'm working on Sunday, so on and so forth. And I said, really? Well, well, that's, that's, that's too bad. But you know, anytime, you know, you get time to work, we'd love to see you at church. Here's a big tip. Keep good work. And we left. Can you imagine if I was a big jerk out in public? Somebody came to our church and they hear me preaching about what it means to be a person of integrity and they sit here on a Sunday and I expect them to deal with that disconnect. Parents, if you say to your child, tell the truth, you better tell the truth. Parents, if you tell your child, share. Small group leaders, 
what you're telling your small group members about what it means to live a Christian life, are you living it? Integrity. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Practically, I wasn't spending, I was going to spend this much time on this, but are you guys resonating with this? Anybody? Yeah, conviction, right? Yeah, I know. Husbands, we got to go home and apologize to our wives today. Don't shake your head. I got people shaking. I go, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay, practically real quick, real quick, and then I'll I'll move on. Practically, what does it mean? One, begin at the end. What do I mean? What do you want to be remembered for? I'm one of those people that's obsessed with, like, legacy, you know? I'm one of those people that's obsessed with, like, I want to be, I want to be able to be there at my funeral, you know? I'm one of those people that's like, I wish I could kind of be there and pray, whatever. And here's what I want to think about. I want to go, what do I want my best friend to get up at my funeral and say about me? What do I want my children to say about me or my spouse? What do I want to be remembered? What do you want to be remembered for? Begin at the end. Think about what you want to be remembered for. And do you want to be remembered as a man or woman of integrity? Secondly, make it public. What do I mean? Some of y'all need to ask yourself, what small thing in my life right now, if I don't get a handle on it, is going to become a really big thing? What small thing in my life right now is going to become a big thing if I don't get a handle on it? Go public, meaning tell somebody. Tell somebody. And we go, but doesn't it make sense that you don't want to tell a small group of people that love you to death about what that is then eventually have people that don't even care about you find out? What small thing in your life right now you're going, if I don't get a handle on this? Tell somebody. Accountability. Character is personal, but character is not private. Who can you tell about the person that you want to be and say, there's this thing in my life. It's pretty small, but (gasps) third. And I can say this third thing about anything, right? Go to the gospel. Go to the gospel. Why? Integrity. Okay, so you're going to go out and go, okay, so I'm going to make a list of things and, and do. No, no, no. Integrity begins with gospel. Why? Here's it. Here it is. To, be, to have integrity means to be integrated, to be whole, to be put together, right? Colossians 1.15, Paul says, in Christ, all things hold together. You want your life to be integrated so you can be a person of integrity? Jesus Christ is at the center of it all. Integrity. Integrity. Let's keep going. Verse 19. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plot of the Jews. You know. Again, Paul could say that. You know. He claims transparency that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. Will you guys look at that really carefully, okay? Because look what Paul says. Paul says, I did not hesitate to preach everything that you wanted to hear. What did he say? He says, I had hesitated to preach anything to, to you that would be what? That would be what? Helpful to you. You know what we do? Here's what we do. We are prone to either tell people what they want to hear because we're so afraid of their rejection. We're so much more concerned with acceptance, which really is loving ourselves instead of them. So we never confront, never tell. Or we say stuff, but it's rarely helpful because we completely lack love. Can anybody relate? Paul found this incredible balance, he says. No, I didn't just tell you stuff that you wanted to hear. Nor does he say, and nothing that I said was helpful because I just, you know, went and just brought destruction by my words. He says, no, I spoke the truth in love. One of the most misunderstood Bible verses is Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. The context is Jesus talking about being judgmental. Okay? He's talking about being judgmental. And he says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. 
Don't give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn them, tear you to pieces. Here's how a lot of Christians have interpreted this verse. And it's just mind-boggling to me. They say, the pearls, that's the gospel. It's the truth. It's, 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 it's the valuable truth of the gospel. And so their rationale is, so don't give it to people that won't appreciate it. Don't give it to people that can't understand it. Don't give it to people that won't accept it. Small problem with that. You tracking? If that's what it really means, then why did Jesus bother to come? Why did Jesus bother to come? Because you know what? Didn't understand it. Didn't really appreciate it. Certainly didn't accept it. Jesus should have saved himself a trip if that's what it really means. The principle in this verse is not worthiness. Are they worthy? The principle is helpfulness. Are they being helped by the truth that you speak? So think about it. What do you feed pigs when they're hungry? You feed slop. Somebody say slop. No. You feed pigs food when they're hungry, right? You don't feed pigs pearls. If a hungry pig gets a pearl and he bites on it, he's going to turn on you. Why? At least you're edible. (laughs) The principle of this is not don't give things to people that can't appreciate it. Don't give things to people that aren't worthy of it. He's saying don't give things to people in such a way that it's not helpful to them. So here's the balance of truth and love. Some of us rarely speak things in truth. Why? I'm telling you right now. Some of y'all here are so codependent on relationships or such cowards that you rarely speak truth because you're like, if I say that to her, if I say that to him, they're not going to be friends. They're not going to take it well. And I don't want that rejection. I don't want that. So I'm just not going to tell them anything or I'm just going to tell them what they want to hear. And you're not speaking truth. Some of us, though, are great truth tellers. How many of y'all have parents that are great truth tellers? Uh huh. And they think they're speaking truth and love. Oh, they, they say, I'm going to. But the problem is, when you're speaking truth without love, it's not really truth. Why? The Bible says God is truth, and God was the embodiment of love. So when you speak truth without love, you're not telling them truth, you're lying to them because you're telling them that God isn't love, God isn't about grace. So let me ask you something. In your daily dealings in life, are you someone that's finding the balance of speaking the truth in love? So you guys, here's the problem. The problem is when we, when we go to people and we're going to tell them the truth and I'm going to tell you how it is. The problem is that we only know a part of their story. You don't know their whole story. You don't know their whole story. You don't know what they've gone through. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know the kind of family. You don't know exactly what God is doing in them. And here we come and saying, you got to get it this way. You got to get it in this time frame. And you got to get it in the way I want to. And God says, stop. First and foremost, if you're going to speak anything to anybody, are you aware of the greatness of what I am doing in their lives today? Can you see that? Is there enough humility about you that, A, you could admit, I don't know their whole story, so I'm not going to assume or presume that I do. And secondly, is there humility to stand in front of that great soul in which God is doing his work in his time, in his way? Because if you don't recognize that and you just go and I'm going to say, God says, I'm going to turn around and you deserve to be eaten. wonderful imagery, isn't it? Speaking the truth in love. I have not hesitated to preach anything that was helpful to you. Can you guys tell which I err on? Yeah, I'm way too loving. I just, I can't tell people what the, I just, I have a hard time telling, I have a hard time saying hard stuff to people. I just, Verse 20, 21. Let's keep going. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, gospel is for everyone, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Every Sunday, the thing that I love about our church, you guys, is that we have Christians and non-Christians. We have people of faith and people who are not. 
And I love the fact that anywhere you go in the Bible, you see, you see an explanation of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to embrace the gospel. And if you're not a Christian here today, I want to tell you, you look up here, listen carefully. If you're not a Christian here today, I want you to know what it means to be a Christian is not, you may have heard, you know, people say, here's what it means to be a Christian. Just believe in God. No. Or just accept Jesus. No. According to the Bible, what it means to be a Christian is to repent and to believe the good news. And they always go together. I thought about why this is hard to preach in churches today. And that's because, as I saw on CNN this past Sunday, when we think of the word repentance, what do we think of? We think of people holding signs and red letters that says repent. And they're probably standing outside some sort of a funeral of a slain soldier. And it's really unfortunate because this is one of the most life-transforming, life-giving words in all of the Bible. Metanoia. Repent. Here's what, Paul, uh, here's what Peter said in, in, in Acts chapter 3, verse 19 about repentance. He said, repent and then turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. So that, and check this out, check this out, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's Repent and then turn to God. He, he tells us what it means so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What does it mean to repent? Repent is not just feeling sorry for what we've done. It's not feeling regret for things we've done. It's not less than that, but it's way more. Repentance in the Greek literally is to change your mind, change your heart, to change your behavior. Um, Imagery that came to mind about repentance. How many of you guys saw the movie, The Shawshank Redemption? One of us, right? Oh, there it is. Okay. Picture that. Picture that. Because do you remember, do you remember what leads up to that? Do you remember what leads up to that? Here's our repentance. Re- times are refreshing. Okay. Yes. Andy Dufresne. Okay. He is played by Tim Robbins. He, he, is, he is jailed for a crime he says he didn't commit, right? And the whole movie is about his ultimate escape. But in order for him to escape, do you remember? He has to go through 500 yards of the sewage system underneath this prison that is filled with what? The excrement of the other prisoners. And there's this scene at the end of the movie where he's coming out and he bursts out of the pipe having gone through 500 yards of Literally crap, right? 500 yards. And he comes out. And it's pouring down rain. He comes out of that thing. And that's the picture. He says, ah! And he spreads his arms. He rips his shirt. He goes back into that river and comes back out. And just stands there as rains come pouring down. Washing away the filth. Washing away the crud. Washing away. Can I swear in church? No. Washing away the, the stuff. You guys, there's some of you sitting here today. You feel dirty. You feel like there's stuff on you. you Maybe because of what you did yesterday or the night before, or maybe even today. And there's some of you sitting here today. I'm telling you, you don't feel whole. You don't feel clean. And you're looking at that going, can, can I experience that? Like, really? Like, God pouring down rains of his grace and his mercy. Feeling like I could finally <gasps> breathe again because I haven't felt that in, 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 in a long time. The interesting thing about that scene and that movie, put it back up again, Raymond, is if you ever notice the top, look, look, at, the, look at the little phrase there that, that kind of is, is sort of the thematic thing. Of it. it says, fear can hold you prisoner. Hope can set you free. Do you know why that was so powerful for me? Some of you guys have never noticed that because here it is. Listen, listen. 
the essence of sin, people of all kinds, the essence of sin, the thing that keeps us away from God is not just that we've done some bad things and we've done some stuff that we shouldn't have and we disobey God. The essence of sin, the Bible says from Genesis Revelation, is that we have taken control over our lives. We have removed from God where he rightfully deserves to be and we have enthroned ourselves to be gods ourselves and said, I'm in control of my life. The essence of sin, the Bible says over and over again, is this instinctive nature within us to usurp God's authority and for us to enthrone ourselves to say, now my life is my own. The essence of sin. When we do that, here's what the Bible says. When we usurp God's authority, we then begin to build our identity, our life, our significance on other things because we need to worship something. So here's what we do. We build our identity on significance, identity on, 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 on other identities, like jobs, relationships. We begin to build our significance, identity, worth, and other things. And we pile on, we pile on, pile on. And here's the thing. We think that thing is going to give us freedom. We think whatever we get that, that's how I'm really going to live. When I get that, I'll really be alive. And so we build. And so here's the thing. We pursue all of that because we think it's going to make us free. But the opposite happens because when we begin to build our identity in other gods, instead of freedom comes what? Slavery. The very thing that we think promises us freedom. I can really live free from constraints of anybody. And the very thing. Why? Because all of a sudden you now realize I can't live without it. I need it. I can't go a moment or second without it. And you no longer own it. It starts owning you. And your life today is characterized. You're not living. You're just existing, man. You're just existing. You guys know people like that? Are you someone that's doing that? You just exist. You get up every morning. And that thing, I have it now, but you're not alive. You're just going through the motions. It's a life of misery. And here's what repentance is. Repentance is not coming to God. If you're a Christian, you need to hear this. Repentance is not coming to God and saying, God, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry. Repentance is coming to God and saying, I have usurped your authority. I have lived my life the way I want to. I've taken control of my life. And as a result of that, God, I have built my identity and my significance on anything and other things besides you. And repentance is not just coming and saying, God, I'm sorry I did that. Repentance is saying, and that thing, that thing, Fill in the blank. That thing that gives me identity significance in my life. I am willing to God change my mind, change my heart, change my behavior. That is, I'm willing to uproot that. I'm willing to uproot that, God. Some of you guys, you became a Christian and you thought it was just believe in God. And your entire Christian life has been one struggle after another, one struggle after another, one struggle after another, one struggle after another. And there's been no growth. You constantly hit this ceiling. And you're going, what's going on? The going on is the foundation of your life is still the same thing. You're the God of your life. And interestingly, Peter says this. Here's what it means to be a Christian. Repent, and then he says, then turn to God. That's where belief comes in. Repent, and then turn to God. Why? True repentance and belief is two sides of the same coin. True repentance doesn't say, okay, I'm going to turn my back now on sin. I'm going to turn my face towards God. True repentance is not just saying no to something. True repentance has to be I'm saying yes to something. Yes to what? Yes to who Christ is, what he has done for you. And here's what I've found, you guys. True genuine repentance, looking at the lifeless idols and gods in our lives and uprooting that, true repentance is not possible until and unless you see the beauty, the wonder, and the majesty of the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. Unless you're absolutely blown away by the beauty of Christ, absolutely blown away by what he has done for you and how he thinks about you, it becomes literally next to impossible to uproot ourselves, our self-reliance, self-dependence, and self-God idolatry in our lives until we see the beauty of who Christ is and what he has done. What has he done? Let me sum it up this way. The gospel. Jesus Christ came 
and he died to forgive you. What does it mean he died to forgive you? It means that Jesus Christ, the son of God, comes to this earth and relentlessly pursues sinners like you and me. Not, not, not to angrily strip away our freedom, but to lovingly and affectionately strip away our slavery so that we can truly be free. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say it one more time. And for those of you that resonate with this and feel like jumping out of your seat and saying, amen, this is your story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that he angrily wants to punish us for our sins, but in love, he pursues rebels, sinners like us, not to angrily strip away our freedom. That's what Satan wants you to believe, but to lovingly strip away our slavery so that we can be truly free. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ comes, takes upon himself our sins, our condemnation, our judgment, so that all of that is taken away. So that those who believe in Christ, although we are more defective and lost than we dared believe, we are in Christ more loved and more accepted than we dared hope at the same time. The gospel. Is that good news to anybody? It's wonderful news. It's wonderful. If you ever sit there and go, Christian life is about God robbing me of my joy. Christian life is about God taking things away that rob us of our joy so we could find true joy in him. In him. Amen. This is great news. Verse 22, let's keep going. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem and not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. By the way, you want a great definition of grace? You want a great definition of grace? Okay, I got this from a book. Here it is. Ready? Grace. Unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobliged giver. I love that. Grace. Unconditional acceptance. This is what God thinks of you. Granted to an undeserving person by an unobliged giver. This verse has been one of my life verses since college. The first time I came across this verse, I was like, did you see what he says? Compelled by this fear, I'm going to Jews. I'm not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me, to which many of us go, that doesn't sound very pleasant. And then he says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race. And this has stayed with me. And this is the reason why I hate bumper stickers. <laughs> what do I mean? <laughs> I'm talking about Christian bumper stickers. I hate Christian bumper stickers because Christian bumper stickers speak a theology that I just don't agree with because these Christian bumper stickers give Christians comfort for all the wrong reasons. And one of these has misguided and diluted the calling on every believer. You know where I'm going with this? And this Christian bumper sticker that speaks a theology that isn't found in scripture says, and the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Is that true? The center of God's will, I totally jacked that quote up. See how much I hate it. The center of God's will, this theology says, is the safest place to be. And so we have developed this safe theology if we are in God's will that has misguided the church and has watered down the calling that is on a follower of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? When we believe that God's purpose, God's intention, and God's motivation for us is just so that we could be safe, we are utterly disconnected from this God who moves in the world with power and with authority. I'll tell you if you've been affected by this theology. Here's what else you'll say. God will never give me something that I can't handle. 
Are you kidding me? I'm not picking on you, by the way, if you say that. Like you're going, I say that. What I'm not picking on you. Think about it. God will never give me anything I can't handle. Is that found in the Bible? I don't know. Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky. My wife can't have a baby. It's okay. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous in the sky. My wife is 60, 70, 80. Moses, I have a stuttering problem, God. I'm not very eloquent. Okay. Deliver my people. Two million of them out of Egypt. Me? David, have all the sons line up. Not the strongest, not the tallest, not the most brave. You, I'll take you. Him? You. Yeah, I'll take you. Mary, 15 years old. You are going to get pregnant by the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Let me ask you something. When, when, eh, when, when in the Bible does God give something to somebody that they can handle? What I see in the Bible is God showing up and saying, you can't do this. You won't be able to do this, but I'm going to show up and do it in and through you so that the world might be glorified. That's what I see in the Bible. That's what I see over and over and over again in the Bible. I was just recently talking to a seminary graduate and his wife. I asked him, I said, what are you going to do? What kind of ministry are you going to do? And of course, me being me, I said, you need to stay in Chicago. To which he said something that blew me away. Seminary graduate, he said this. He said, oh, no, I, I would never do that. I said, why? He said, because God would never expect us to stay in such a dangerous, corrupt place where our children are in danger. That's what he said. God would never expect us to. And I thought, okay. If the Christian leaders are looking for all the safe places, who will lead the church into the dangerous places? Who will lead the church into the dangerous places? How do we develop this safe theology by reading the Bible? What what Bible are you reading? Here, let me show you the Bible I read. Acts chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse verse 3. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. This is Paul, by the way. I'm more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and then exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 latches minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent the night and a day in the open sea. Oh, man. I've constantly been on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've been gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Apparently, following Jesus is a dangerous undertaking. How can we ever think, you guys, that the Christian faith is safe when the central metaphor is a cross? How do we develop a safe theology when baptism, baptism, okay, is a watery grave depicting death and resurrection? As we'll do today. How do we develop safe theology whenever we take the communion, we're reminded that the Son of God was tortured and beaten to death and poured out his life? And he said, y'all need to do the same. Paradigm shift. By the way, can I just, I had a, a young lady from our church last week. She goes, she was so excited. She's like, I have a joke for you, Pastor Peter. I'm like, a joke? Okay. So she gets me today. She's like, sit down, sit down, sit down. I'm sitting down. She puts two dimes on my right hand. And she goes, what do you have? And I said, 20 cents. She goes, no, 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 no. Try again. Two dimes. She goes, okay, now take it and put it in the other hand, okay? She's like, what do you have now? I'm like, 20 cents in my left hand. She goes, no, 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 it's a paradigm shift. Get it? Lord. Now you got that imagery. Here's a paradigm shift for you. Listen, here's a paradigm shift for you. Ready? The center of God's will is not the safest place. The center of God's will is the most dangerous place in the world. 
Do you know why? Center of God's will of God is God fears no one and God fears nothing. And God moves with intentionality and power. Being outside of God's will puts us in danger, but being inside of God's will makes you dangerous for his kingdom, for his mission, for his cause. I don't know about you, but I want to be a dangerous Christian. I want to be somebody that embraces his challenge to say, God, send me wherever, whenever, however, because I'd rather be there than anywhere else. Anybody with me? Yeah, yeah, okay. You can't do this, though, unless you die. Metaphorical spiritual death. You notice what Paul says? I love this. In verse 24, he says, after having said that, he says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Only dead people can follow the God of the cross. Can I say that again? Only dead people can follow the God of the cross. Only dead people can follow the God of the cross. Jesus said, if you follow me, you will carry the cross and then come follow me. He was saying clearly, believing in me, accepting in me, not what it means to be a Christian, not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's what it means. I'm going to go die for you. And if you want to follow me, you do the same. That means that if you want to follow me, truly follow me, you'll be willing to die. Die to yourself. Die to your desires. Die to your ambitions. Die to your wants. Every command that I give you will be a command to die. If you're not willing to die, don't bother. Don't bother. Can I ask you something? Are you dead? Are you a dead Christian? Have you died to yourself? Here's a good way to find out. I have two sort of questions that I want to ask you guys on whether you have died to yourself and followed him. Number one, have you died to self-determination? What do I mean? Do you obey God because it makes sense or because it seems good to you? Or do you obey God simply because he says obey? Dead people, truly dead people that follow Jesus who've died to themselves, don't obey God because I like it. Don't obey God because it makes sense. Although many times it does. Don't obey God because I understand it. We follow God and we obey because he says obey. So am I willing to obey him and all the areas of my life, relationships, jobs, career, family, where I live, how long I live, who I date, how much money I spend, where I spend it. Obey whatever God says in this area, no matter how I feel about it. Second, dead people die to their old will and their cost-benefit way of making decisions. What do I mean? Dead people who follow Jesus don't follow Jesus because, you know, as long as it doesn't interrupt my career plans. Dead people don't follow Jesus, you know, as long as it doesn't interfere with my social life. Dead people don't follow Jesus, you know, as long as I can keep my lifestyle. Dead people don't follow Jesus as a cost-benefit way of what is it for me. Dead people follow Jesus simply regardless of the cost. regardless of the cost. So here's a question. Am I willing to thank God for whatever he says in this area, whether I understand it or not? You know what I love to read? I love to read missionary biographies. Anybody else? No. He's honest. We are about integrity today, so thank you, Nathan. One of my favorite missionaries is Jim Elliott. Anybody familiar with Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott, Ecuador, gave his life in his early 20s. A Wheaton guy. Anybody Wheaton? No. no. His, his story has been told famously by his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, for decades. And I read, I read his book or her, her, her account of his life when I was in college. But I, what I didn't know was that there were other missionaries, Jim Elliott's friends, who made just as powerful impact. And one of them was a guy named Nate Saint. And this is what he said. This is a guy who died in his early 20s. People who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries. They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. I say this to you all the time. The greatest fear in life should not be that you would fail. The greatest fear in life should be that we would succeed at something in life that at the end of the day will not matter. And then I come across this quote. 
the Wesleyan Methodist missionary, James Calvert, who, as he was a missionary going to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands in the late 1800s, the ship captain tried to turn him back saying, you're going to lose your life and the lives of everyone with you if you go among such savages. And he was reported to reply, we died before we came. These men remind me that God's promise is not that everything will go well for us, but God's promise in Scripture is that our life will be well lived. And how long you live will not ultimately determine how well you have lived your life. For some of us, the challenge for us is to move beyond our small ambitions. I've got success. I've got wealth. I've arrived. And God says, give up your small ambitions. I've got plans for your life that are way bigger, way bigger. The challenge for many of us today is not to choose between good and evil. It's the challenge to choose that which is what God has called us to do and smaller, less ambitions that our world says you need that. I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that my life is well lived. I don't care if I live two more years. It's going to kill my wife. She's going to be like, I hate it when you say that. But I'm serious, you guys. I turned 40. And by the way, can I just say, you know when you turn 40, the thought that enters my mind that you've never thought about, which is you no longer think about, man, I've lived 40 years. You start thinking, how many more years do I have left? 20, 25. I want to make sure I live my life well. I want to make sure I live my life well. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race. Speaking of finishing, I want to finish today's sermon. Here's the tail end of it. We're going to just cover these verses and then we're done. Verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I love that. The whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flocks of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Carlton, you can come on up. Have you noticed that the church recently has become a target amongst a lot of Christians? Anybody? Anybody? I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people say, the church is so messed up, man. The church is so messed up. To which I want to go, well, no, that Sherlock Holmes. What else is new? The church is messed up. The church is judgmental. The church is unloving. The church is unfaithful. The church is lacking love. The church is homophobic. The church is a lot of things. But what do you expect when you get a lot of unholy people trying to do holy things? What do you get when you get a group of people, you know, who are corrupt, who lie, who are slanderers, sexually immoral, deceive, cheat, greedy, materialistic? The church is full of them. The church is full of us. We are them. As a pastor, I have to think about this a lot, you guys, because this verse of Paul where he says, Jesus Christ gave his life for the church he gave his life for the church and I go how do I reconcile how I feel about the church a lot of times and what he did and then I ran across this quote the church is a whore but she's also my mother you know who said this apparently St. Augustine maybe Martin Luther and if you're thinking that's offensive. That's unbiblical. Actually, have you read the book of Hosea? The book of Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. And the book of Hosea pictures and illustrates the, the, the Israelites, the people of God, as Gomer, Hosea, prophet's wife of whoredom, who can't stay committed to her husband and goes out and has affair after affair after affair affair. And the incredible thing is, the Bible says that God never disowns but he pursues 
He pursues his beloved. And the beauty of the gospel is that even the wife of whoredom, even Gomer, who's unfaithful to her husband over and over again, the body of Christ, the church, even though we're unfaithful, even though we've got issues, even though we've got all kinds of things, the Bible says that God never disowns us, but God treasures the church. He nurtures the church. He cherishes the church. He gives his life for the church. We see this pattern in the Bible over and over again in the Old Testament. There's some good people and there's some bad. God raised some good leaders and some bad leaders. Israelites follow God and are faithful for a little bit and then they mess up and sin. And the whole time, God remains faithful, never disowns them. He disciplines them in love, pursues them. New Testament, the church begins, Acts 2, 4, great. But by the time Acts 5, you got liars, you got deceivers. Acts 7 and 8, they're fighting with each other. They're ethnocentric. They're still racist. They can't get beyond. And yet God never gives up on them. God remains faithful. This doesn't mean, you guys, that we should glory in our unfaithfulness and we shouldn't care. But here's what this means. This means that the Bible says that God loves the church, cares for the church, nurtures for the church. And God will not give up on the church. And the call of us is that we would work our tails off to sanctify, work our tails off to be better at, work our tails off to mature as the body of Christ. Not give up. The church is a whore. But so are we. So are we. I just say this because there's some of you that are saying, the church, I've given up. I don't want to be involved. I don't care. God says he died for the church. He bled and died for the church. Look, I feel about the church the same way that I feel about my family and friends. It's not warm and fuzzy all the time. Anybody feel warm and fuzzy about the church? I don't feel like that about my family all the time. But you know what? You're my family. I'm your family. And we've been joined together. We've been joined together, baptized, all of us, with our differences, into one body, and we are called to care. If you're looking for the perfect church, go somewhere else. If you're looking for the ideal church, go somewhere else. If you're looking for a utopian church society, go somewhere else. But if you're looking for a church with messed up, broken, addicted, sinning, hopeless, screwed up, idiotic, and yet other times very loving, very forgiving, very committed people, this just might be the church for you. Carlton, stop playing because I need to say this. (laughs) If you're looking for the perfect community, no such thing exists. And oh, by the way, if there was a perfect community, it would no longer be perfect the moment you step through the door. We're all broken. We're all messed up. But that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that in our mess, in our brokenness, we get to see God's grace that much more. In our brokenness, in our mess, we get to see God's grace that much more as he says, yeah, Lord, I love you. I'm not giving up on you. So don't you give up on each other. I have a friend of mine who put this quote out. He said, for those people that are tired of complaining about the church, he said, when was the last time you, instead of worrying about the grass is greener on that side, you started watering your own grass? Are you investing? Are you caring? Are you loving? It's really easy to sit on the sidelines and go, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. It's a lot harder to get up. All right. Broken, messed up, flawed. Don't have a lot to offer, but here I am. You're who we need. Bow your heads with me. Now you can play. Thank you. We're having communion today, and what an appropriate time. Here's what I want you to do, church. Today might be one of the more important communion Sundays we'll celebrate because I'm going to ask some of you for 
I'm going to ask you to be a man and woman of integrity, okay? If you're somebody that sat there and you've criticized the church, I'm not just talking about our church, but the church in general, and you're a Christian. I'm not talking about non-Christian, you're a Christian. And you've slandered, you've gossiped. You haven't loved, you've been judgmental. This bride of Christ that's full of flaws, full of weaknesses, full of all kinds of junk, imperfect people. You sat on the sidelines and you basically just kind of bashed it and you're a Christian. I'm going to ask you today to, to be a man or woman of courage and to ask God for forgiveness. Because here's what the Bible says about what communion is. Not just an individual personal thing where you come and you take the elements and you say, thank you for dying for me and rising for me. The Bible says that what you're about to do is recognizing the body of Christ. That is what you're about to do. You're recognizing that Jesus Christ didn't just do this for you, but he did it for us to form this community, to make this possible. That's why he did it. And the Bible says, if you take it without recognizing that, that is appreciating it, thanking God for it, you're bringing on judgment on yourself. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that. So here's what I'm going to ask for those of you that I want you to sit there, come up to the cross if you feel led as a public sort of confession. But wherever you are, take a moment to say, God, will you forgive me for my attitude towards the church? Forgive me for my thoughts towards the church. Forgive me, Lord God, for the way that I felt was zero grace and nothing but condemnation and judgment. And then come up and recognize the body and take the elements. Furthermore, if you are sitting here and you have something against another person or they have something against you, go to them immediately. Go to them immediately. Don't wait. Immediately. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Reconcile. And then come and take the elements. Don't bring judgment on yourself by your carelessness. This is the body broken for you, Jesus said. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of what I've done for you. This is my blood, Jesus said, as he poured it. This blood is representative of the new covenant, blood shed in my name, so that you can be forgiven of your sins, that times of refreshing may come, cleansing you, washing you, as you repent and turn towards God. Brothers and sisters, family in the Lord, whenever you feel ready, stations are set up. Come and take the elements. The Lord invites us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for the church. It is his bride. It is his treasure. As we leave today, brothers and sisters, family of God, may we leave in recognition and utter humility and deep respect for the bride of Christ, the church, with its flaws, with its issues, with its warts and all. For it is such a thing that we are welcomed into. It is such a thing that welcomes and invites people just like us, just like you and me. And as you go forth, pray that wherever God has you this week, that you would realize that you have a mission there to be a man and woman of integrity, to be a man and woman who will shine the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people will see the beauty, the wonder, and the majesty of he, who he is and what he has done in the words that you speak and in the way that you live. May the Spirit of God be with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen.